Hey, Dylan Kelly here, host of the Wave Break Podcast. Excited to get into this episode, but first, here's a quick word from our sponsor. This episode of the Wave Break Podcast is brought to you by Clavio, the growth marketing platform most recommended by other business leaders. Listen, in uncertain times, you need to be supporting your community and growing relationships with your customers. It's going to be appreciated. It's going to be remembered. It's going to be shared. And in good times and bad, this type of communication that's open and empathetic with your customers is key. This is a key theme that we've been talking about at Waybreak. I've been preaching this on the podcast. And when you're communicating with your customers in this way, the best way to do this is with email. It is and always will be one of the best channels for delivering communication like this. And what I love about Klaviyo is that email is one of its core offerings. And their personalization that you can do inside Klaviyo is just, it can't be beat. And when you leverage that personalization driven by a 360 degree view of the customer, these emails are going to feel more relevant and they're going to drive even stronger relationships. And Klaviyo gets it. They're not just, you know, some company. They understand how challenging it is right now for every entrepreneur. You know, it was hard to get your business off the ground and navigating these times is even harder. And if you're feeling overwhelmed with growing your business, know that you're not alone. Klaviyo is here to help you build relationships across any distance for your brand and create memorable and meaningful email marketing moments that last a lifetime. And that's how you build a successful e-commerce brand. And this is why I love Klaviyo so much, because they're on the same page with me and Wavebreak. is like, we're not just about making more revenue. That's great. But what this is really about is an opportunity to create an amazing community with your customers. And the best way to do it is with email. And if you're not on Klaviyo, you got to get on Klaviyo. Visit klaviyo.com to schedule a free trial. That's K-L-A-V. IYO.com. You're listening to the Wavebreak Podcast, the show where I interview the people behind the fastest growing e commerce and direct to consumer brands. I'm your host, Dylan Kelly, founder and CEO at Wavebreak. Wavebreak is the email and CRM agency for high growth D2C brands. With ad costs rising, we help brands maximize lifetime value by building and optimizing world-class email and SMS marketing programs. You can learn more about partnering with us at wavebreak.com. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Wavebreak Podcast, the marketing podcast for the fastest growing direct-to-consumer brands. Really excited for today's episode. I hope you had a great Black Friday, Cyber Monday on the Wavebreak side. If you're unfamiliar with me and the company, I'm Dylan Kelly. I'm founder and CEO of Wavebreak. We were one of the first agencies exclusively focused on email and shortly after that, SMS marketing, working with some of the fastest growing direct consumer brands. Uh, we had a really great Q4 and a really great Black Friday, Cyber Monday. Most of our clients were in the 60% to 120% range year over year increase. Uh, in revenue from email, not even counting SMS. Uh, we had some outlier clients seeing incredible results, even for like larger enterprise brands seeing over 400% year over year increase, which is really fun and exciting. And what we do is we just continue to build and optimize our playbook year over year. So now we've got over five years of Black Friday, Cyber Monday data, uh, email marketing and SMS now uh, over the last few years to really optimize and drive strategy from day one. So when we work with you, we don't just learn from your program. We also have our five years of insights that we bring to your brand. So if you want to learn more about working with us, you can do so at waybreak.com. Really excited for today's episode. I'm joined by Jeremy Horowitz. Uh, We'll get into more of his background if you're unfamiliar with him. He's been on the pod before. 
but a uh, really smart guy, uh, used to run marketing at a brand, and we'll, we'll, we'll get into that um, in what he's doing now. But uh, yeah, he has access to a ton of data as well on like what's working and what's not right now and what's going on with increased CAC and CPAs and all these different things. So um, we're going over uh, predictions for 2022 based on 2021's data, as well as just the trends we're seeing in general. And um, a lot to learn in this one, and it's going to be potentially the most impactful podcast you'll listen to as a result. Uh, as you get into 2022, you'll look back on this one and be like, wow, I'm glad I listened to that one. So uh, this is one of the best ones in a while. So let's jump right into it. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Jeremy. Yeah, really appreciate you having me back. Hopefully I didn't completely annoy the audience last time. And hopefully <laughs> we get in some fun topics today that everybody will have, will have a lot of takeaways kind of as they start planning their 2022. Yeah, I think that'd be great. I think what's really exciting context for people who don't know um, that much about you is you have like a few perspectives that I think are really unique in the industry. You've got your own podcast where you're talking to founders and different software companies and different people in the space. So you have that perspective from like actual conversations, which you know, you learn really interesting things as a podcast host, especially when the recording stops. Um, (laughs) And then uh, the other piece is you work at Dacity, who probably has one, you know, outside of Shopify, one of the biggest data sets as a data company of the industry, which I think is really exciting. So I'm sure you have a lot of insights on trends there. And then the last piece is um, you have your new fund that you're working on, which you're getting to see a lot of like early stage or even like pre-revenue, pre-launch companies too. And you're evaluating those across this perspective that you have from these other places of like, is this company going to succeed in the future? And so um, that's what I want to talk about today is like 2021, you know, even just thinking like from 2016 to 2019, that's kind of like that first window of like the original, I guess, like, I don't know, it's kind of like the second wave, because I think a lot of people started 2013-ish maybe, but like, you know, that's kind of like the, the good old days. 2020 was pandemic growth. Everything's amazing after like three, four weeks of freaking out. And then 2021 has been quite the interesting year of updates to iOS 14 and 15 and acquisition and just the game is getting a lot harder. I'm, I'm curious, like your experience in the industry, what are you seeing over these last couple of years, just like general trends? Yeah. Also, let me just start off by first. Wow. Thank you. Like anytime I go anywhere, I should just like invite you to introduce <laughs> me wherever I go. I don't know that I could have done a good, that good of a job with that. Yeah. So my background in the space, I joined kind of slightly before that, what I call the heyday of D2C, when brands who started on e-commerce were called DNVBs or digitally native vertical brands. Before that, they were just called e-commerce. And before that, I don't think I was, I was like a child. So like online um, store, I yeah. think. Just like <laughs> Yahoo the weirdo, store. The weirdo in his basement. like Yeah, the like, PayPal button. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I think... I think the interesting thing in the confluence of even just looking at like 2016 to what you said of 2020 to 2021, you had unbridled growth, like the tsunami wave was behind us. And then COVID just took that into whatever is past the tsunami. And it was just crazy. And economic forces just pushed everybody in D2C to new heights that they never thought that they would hit or accelerated at a faster rate than they thought that they would really do. Um, I mean, not everybody. There were some brands who unfortunately didn't make it through. But overall, the, the industry did amazing. And then in 2021, you didn't have any of those just like gale winds just blowing you forward. But everybody expected the same growth because it was so incredible for a, whole, a various amount of reasons. It's been really interesting to see how 
like I feel like everybody in e-commerce is always used to, you need to get done, you need to more, get more done with less resources. And 2021, I feel like was the quintessential example of that, where it's like, we want to see 300, 400, 500% growth, but you don't have everybody locked down buying because of retail therapy and they literally cannot go somewhere else. And so I think what's going to be really interesting is that you've kind of had this just kind of really just gush of building and building for now probably 13 years. I mean, probably even pretty that like it's probably been a heyday if you've been in e-com even since like 2011. But now like something just has to happen. Consumers aren't, we're seeing, especially with Q4 numbers of 2021, CAC is rising. New customer acquisition is getting really like actually hard now, not like, oh, we're concerned about it. Like brands are actually turning the fire hose off and they're like, okay, I, I literally cannot afford this anymore. Where am I going to go get my revenue from? And I think the third piece is, is that people are just getting smarter where, I know we were talking about this right before we jumped on of like any innovative brand now will be copycatted in six months. Like I, I've not seen a brand that can withhold it. And before I was doing all the stuff that Dylan said at the beginning, I was at a brand. We were a cell phone manufacturer that had a list. And I literally mean like on a document, a list of intellectual property for a phone case. And every product we released, we were ripped off within four to six months. And there, it's just like, it's too easy. It's too competitive. The privy line, they really like Dave Gerhardt's work there was beautiful of it's never been easier to start an e-commerce brand, but it's also never been harder to run one and make it successful. Like we're just going to see this real confluence of people aren't willing to pump cheap money in. People really need to figure out how to run profitable businesses. And hot take to start off the episode, I actually think 2022 is going to be a massive pullback where a lot of brands, we're going to see a thinning of the herd where a lot of brands are going to have a tough time accessing cheap debt raising venture capital money. And we're probably going to see a lot of businesses either consolidate or go out of business. Yeah. And what's even interesting on top of that, and I want to dive into all a lot of those points that you mentioned, but like what's really interesting on top of that is like, okay, talk about like the ultimate marketplace in general. Like it used to be gauged based on revenue growth. And so your company is more value if you're driving revenue. And then in the middle of this window where everyone's trying to drive as much revenue as possible, it also switched to profitability, which is when you see you know companies like Casper not doing too well, now being uh, turned private. And so it's like a mix of everything. Like your company is less valuable because you were trying to maximize revenue growth. And then like you don't have a lot of profitability. And there's like so many different factors at play. And I think, like you said, um, you know, pe- there was just a lack of there's a general lack of just like basic fundamentals of like what makes an e-commerce brand successful. It's like the guiding metric for the last few years was what is your return on ad spend? Oh when... God, please no. <laughs> Tell me about that. So I know you're in the weeds of a lot of data and metrics day to day at Dacity and everything. I'm sure you hear this a lot too. It's like, yeah, like, well, it, cause it used to be that easy, right? You'd spend a dollar, you get $10 back. It's like, well, everything's going to work out. There'll be money left over at the end. You don't have to do real any real budgeting or forecasting or anything, but yeah. What are your thoughts on like ROAS as your um, number one metric? I'm not sure if I can curse on this podcast, so I'll keep it PG. But ROAS <laughs> is an absolute garbage metric to use for your business. And I know your paid media agencies are probably going to go and hate me everywhere that I am publicly, but here's the problem with, here's the problem with ROAS. And this is why the lack of fundamental understanding for most DC brands of their unit economics is so important. And so I think, let me tackle the unit economics piece first, and I'll keep it super high it. level because I know nobody likes to talk about data. And then we'll go into why ROAS is such a bad metric. So 
Unit economics, contribution margin, your profitability, these are all just high-level terms. I'm not an accounting major. This is not financial advice. I'm not a t- tax or a lawyer, and I've never was never here. But your unit economics at a really high level is how much money did you make from selling something? How much did it cost you to produce it? And that, for an e-commerce brand, also considers your landed costs, so getting it to your warehouse 3PL and shipping it. And then below that is... How much? What was your CAC or your CPA, depending on how your your brand likes to calculate it? But essentially, just how much did it cost you to actually make that sale? And then how much money is left over to then go pay for the business, whether that's team or inventory, other expenses, your tools, all of those other things, right? Because at the end of the day, you can change the mechanics of a lot of different things and how you get cash, but your unit economics and that that essentially machine that works allows you to say, okay, if we're doing $1,000 in sales, sorry, 1,000 units in sales, this is how much we expect in profit. If we're doing a million units in sales, this is how much we expect in profit. Or orders is probably the the better metric to use there. The problem with ROAS is it just says, I spent $10,000 and I go into your 10X example, which if, if you're doing 10X, I'll shut, if anybody's doing 10X, I'll shut up, come tell me what you're doing and please let me roll it out for all the yeah. brands I work with. Um, so right, if you're 10 X example, so you spend $1,000, you make $10,000 back in sales that of course, there's going to be some level of profit, assuming that you don't like, you don't pay your manufacturers thousands of dollars to produce a hundred dollar product. The problem is that most brands actually operate in a two to four X window. And so if you're spending 10,000, if you're spending a thousand dollars to make $2,000, that means that you have a thousand dollars left to pay for your product. <laughs> and everything else for your business, right? Your CAC is eating up 50% of your unit economics. Now, knowing that most brands, their product costs are 50%, the other $1,000 of that sales just went to pay for your product. So if you want to pay your team, if you want to pay yourself, if you want to pay for tooling, if you want to invest in all these other things, I'm oversimplifying this, but just in that basic math, it doesn't work. And then the other reason why I hate ROAS, and this was, I had the battle scars to prove I've learned this lesson myself, is if you start discounting your product, right? Because the classic game and what I call the the margin acquisition trap is you try to discount your product to increase your conversion rate, to drive up your ROAS, but you're not realizing that you're spending more money to make less profit and you're just killing your profit over and over again. And the problem is, is that you see the short-term benefit. And so you think it's a flywheel and you think you're building a machine that's sustainable and that will take off. The problem is, is you've actually just taken a, a puddle jumper off of a cliff and you just don't realize that you're airborne yet. And because you, what you don't realize is that you have to actually move your contribution margin up and focus on things like your AOV, because that way you that will impact your ROAS as well. But if you just move your AOV up instead of discounting to get your conversion rate up, The difference is is you can move the same number of orders through the same system, but at a higher AOV, you're selling more units, which means that you're inherently making more profit because you're selling, right? And this is a classic retail metric of what's called UPT, or how many units are you selling per transaction? So as you think about all of these things and how they all play together, your ROAS really doesn't tell you anything. Your ROAS is an efficiency metric to say that your marketing team is either wasting or not wasting their money. But I honestly don't even feel confident drawing that conclusion because I also know brands who are super successful at a 1x ROAS. And so it's it's really hard and it's become this best practice metric. And 
Facebook was such a magic machine that everybody believes it. Yeah. But well, it's I genius from of- them too. Because if you see like your ROAS and it's like 10X, they're like, wow, I'm spending a dollar and getting 10 back. Even though, like you said, like nobody cares about profitability. People don't think like with their Facebook spend, they don't think like rationally at all. Like they'll spend like 900 grand a month on Facebook ads. And then like everything else is out the window. Like they don't even care, but like, that's the one expense they're fine to just like keep inching up. That's a different conversation for a different day. But anyway, continue on AOV and all this stuff. Yeah. Well, those people were spending $900,000 on Facebook probably in the past six, probably Q2 to Q4 of 2021 learned that that was not a good business model and they do need to diversify their channels. But right. If once you start actually looking at the numbers and also, if you've ever run an Amazon business, this is how Amazon, Amazon doesn't report ROAS if you like actually look in Seller Central or Vendor Central. They report on ACOS, which is their version of a CPA or a CAC, but they're running the same math of you sold this much, your product costs, I mean, they don't technically show you your product costs, but you can do the math. And they show you your advertising costs of sale to get back to what are you actually making? Because I, and I would take a lesson from the people who have made billions to now trillions of dollars in e-commerce. Like the math behind that, just it just it fundamentally works a certain way. Like retail had to calculate things the same way, and so we've just moved it over to e-com and we've distorted the system because Facebook would literally just let you put money into a machine; it would just spin out in a circle and somehow magically create more. But now the brands actually have to figure out how their business and their their model actually works. They're figuring out that acquisition is actually expensive and it's really difficult. And to hit the revenue numbers that they wanted, they have to find a lot of different strategies to get there versus just plugging something into Facebook or hoping to go viral with influencers. Yeah. What, and then like, what are you seeing in terms of increased CAC? So like, you have a lot of data, like, obviously it's been in general, it's been increasing. You've been talking about that for a long time. I've been talking about it for a long time too. We tried to like put the writing on the wall for, for years now. Now we're finally here, but like, what are the, the bumps you're seeing? And then also how does iOS 14 and 15 impact that? Like in the Dacity data stack, like, do you guys see spikes around those time periods? Yeah. So um, I think there's two parts of that question. So the first part is CAC. I've heard from brands that it's anywhere from a 50% increase to a 200% increase. Worst case scenario, I think for just some outliers, it was at like a 400 to 500% increase. So when you think about that, like certain business models just stop working. If your CAC went up 200% and you don't have either an extremely profitable first purchase or a really quick replenishment style business where somebody just comes back and buys a lot within a short time. Because I think the slightly more complicated, but that second part that's why your unit economics is so important is what's called your cash conversion cycle. At a really high level, it's just how many days does it take between you putting cash out of your bank account to buy inventory to cash coming back into your bank account when you make a sale and actually collect. And the problem is, is that usually, especially if you're shipping from China, it's already a long window. And some people have negotiated really great payment turns. And honestly, I think that's like the one, it's not a hack. It's actually just good business that everybody should be doing this year. Everybody should be negotiating with your suppliers, no matter where they are, for better and longer payment terms. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to really matter this year. I know everybody talks about it and it's something that like is not new or novel, but this is the year that if you haven't done it, you need to. And if you have done it, revisit it and see like what you can negotiate because even an extra 15, 30 days is really going to matter this year. Because the problem is if your cap jumps that much, 
you've now just added a longer window for, or you need a much higher amount for when that cash comes back into your business. And that's really what kills e-com businesses. There are plenty of reasons, but at the end of the day, most of them just run out of business because they can't cycle inventory fast enough. And right, the best businesses can cycle inventory super quickly. And so I've seen a lot of brands that are just turning off acquisition because they're like, we cannot afford this. This doesn't make sense for our business. And we're just going to more heavily rely on channels like email, SMS, our community to bring customers back. The second part of your question on like an aggregate level. So we're working with about 1600 brands, Dacity, almost the overwhelming majority are on Shopify plus and the, that like upper end of Shopify where they probably should be on plus, but don't want to pay for it. Uh, what we've seen is the CAC chart, whereas it would probably be pretty flat year over year, we've actually just seen it consistently rise since iOS 14. And it, it's been a pretty interesting trend. I mean, obviously there are dips and a little bit of cyclicality within the six month window that we've noticed a difference, but it's pretty much just been like, what is the adoption of people opting or not adoption? But where is it? how many people are opting out because of iOS 14 and just seeing CAC rise and rise? And because if you think about it, like, the data that Facebook captures that powers their entire beast got kneecapped. They lost all the stuff that made them so smart and could just randomly show people who were searching for home goods, a caraway ad, or people who were searching for, I don't know, betting a Casper ad. And they just, they, they don't have that magic anymore. And so it's, I mean, right. Like you can still run creative things and people are testing TikTok, although I don't know if it's a hot take or not, but I don't think TikTok is going to be this like savior that a lot of brands can just jump to and figure it out. From all the brands I've been talking to, that you have to like figure out TikTok all over again. And the returns are slightly to considerably better than Facebook. But I'm not hearing brands of like, we used to do 10X on Facebook. We're now down to a one or two and I just got 15X on TikTok. Right. It's like reasonable performance there as well. And so I think like brands just need to like re like fundamentally rethink their business models. And I mean, we talked, we talked about this a lot last time. I feel like we talk about this a lot all the time of like, you need to think about how you're extending your customer lifetime value. You need to think about how you're bringing people back faster. And I've seen that be a saving grace for a lot of those brands that did incur those 50 to 200% increases in CAC this year. Yeah. Same here. I mean, a lot of the clients we work with, we obviously have some who, had a more difficult year, but I know we were talking before we hopped on, like it was a really strong year for most of our clients and driving significant year over year increases, even throughout like BFCM, which, you know, I think everyone was kind of like, Oh, what is it going to be like this year? It was like kind of the most unknown, like 2020, everyone was like, Oh, we're going to smash it. And then 2021, it's like, what is going to happen? Like, nobody has no idea. Like, are we going to sell out of our inventory? Are we not going to have enough or like what's going to go on? But um, yeah, it's really, it's really interesting. And like, I think that's one thing that's pretty still really underrated is like having that buffer of repeat and like stacking both. Like, I think what people used to think was hyper growth was really just exponential growth on the back of Facebook. It's like one purchase on top of one purchase on top of one purchase versus like one purchase on top of two repeat on top of a repeat on top of a repeat on top of a repeat. Like it actually goes so much faster that way. If you actually look at any data. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, and I'm curious too, on your end, like across the spectrum, do you see certain brands having a more difficult time? Like are more larger enterprise style brands who are spending a lot more, like, are they having an easier time because they have more money to throw around? Or is it the same difficulty across the board from like, you know, the $75 million, like 
cool direct consumer brand that's spending a ton on Facebook versus, you know, the $5 million bootstrapped, you know, from the basement to the, you know, uh, warehouse now, but like, are there any differences across like business types or is it generally the same, no matter what type of business you are? And now a quick break for a quick word from our sponsor, Okendo. Okendo is the new standard in customer reviews for high growth Shopify brands. We use them with our clients and they work with over 4,000 of the fastest growing Shopify retailers like Skims, Nomad, and Buck Mason to help them leverage their most powerful asset, their customers. Okendo gives brands all the tools they need to capture and showcase customer-generated content like product reviews and ratings, photos and videos, and Q&A. Plus, they have an awesome integration with Klaviyo that makes it easy to do cool stuff like send review request emails and target shoppers based on review content. And now that it's that time of year again, when Black Friday and Cyber Monday are top of mind, Okendo is offering a 90-day free trial to help e-commerce brands ramp holiday conversion without having to worry about increased subscription costs. If you sign up before October 31st, you pay nothing until 2022. It's really a no-brainer to me, and don't worry, you won't be forced into any expensive annual contracts after your trial is up. They offer super affordable monthly subscriptions starting at $29. So you can make the most out of this holiday season with a little help from Okendo. Visit okendo.io and start your free trial today. That's O-K-E-N-D-O.io. Thanks, Okendo, for sponsoring the show. To me, the only considerable difference I've seen is that those larger mid-market slash enterprise book brands are just able to weather the storm a little bit longer, but they're all going through the same thing. They're all going, why can't we get the 5X return that we're used to? And I think it's been really interesting seeing companies that are doing a billion dollars a year in sales and companies doing like $500,000 a year in sales start to deploy the same tactics. Because it's more of like the it's more of the market economics and every business is unique. So I'm really broadly generalizing here. Mm-hmm. But how many brands I've seen in the past 18 months just shift focus away from paid channels to own channels has been fascinating. And then you are playing a bit of a different game at that size. Most billion-dollar brands aren't solely reliant on single, like one-time purchases. It's actually very rare. A lot of those brands have done what you exactly said. Of they have that, and we can get into like power laws and how retention really works for most brands. But they have those customers that can just keep coming back and keep selling, and then they're constantly just feeding the top of the funnel to try to get new people in to try to nurture them up to be those. I call them VIPs. Some people call them most valuable customers, high value customers, whatever you want to call them. Like just those people who are obsessed with your brand and will basically, I love my favorite example is they'll buy Supreme's brick. Like they'll just buy yeah. anything that you put out. And so, I don't know, maybe I'm an idiot. I think they sold out of those. So it must've worked. Dude, yeah, I think so. <laughs> well, and didn't they get bought by like VF Corp or something too? They did. Yeah. Which and like, then VF Corp is super interesting company. Did they sell it again? I think they sold. Yeah, I think they sold it again. I think that VF Corp, VF Corp bought them for something like four hundred million. I think spun them out for like a billion. And I don't know who they're owned by now. But listen, wow. I'm not. I'm not going to trash talk Supreme. I'm fascinated by their business model. I think it's the fact that they stole art, threw it on a T-shirt, and then built an an empire that redefined an entire genre of e- like e-commerce and retail is really impressive. I am shocked at the, the what their customers will spend their money on, but that's not for me to say. But yeah, I really think that there's like, it's so interesting seeing brands also just shift back to kind of old channels that lost their sex appeal. Like I see so many brands either 
moving back into the, cause they've, they've just looking for other channels or they're launching and going back into affiliate or they're going back into like a heavy content SEO strategy or an affiliate strategy. Like on, like almost even, I, I was talking to Jason Wong from Dill Lashes on my podcast recently. And he's saying like, they even built their own affiliate site just to get traffic back to their site. Like they hmm. built a separate <laughs> website that's owned and run by the Dill Lashes team just and like creates like beauty content and other things that their customers are interested just to drive traffic back to their site. And I think it's brilliant. And it's like, it's something that you would have heard of back in the late 2000s from an e-commerce brand. Yeah. It's really interesting to see the shift back of like people are now investing a lot more in like Google PPC and Google shopping and kind of like all of those things that weren't, weren't highly returning and weren't super sexy before, but they drive sales. And if you can figure out how to feed that top of funnel in some manner, it's going to work. I think the last big thing I've been hearing a lot of that I'm really bullish on, but I think it's going to take a while for the industry to move over is connected TV. So like yeah. just running TV style spots on Hulu, YouTube, Roku, whatever the, I'm sure Disney and plus will eventually have it, but like all of those channels and just somebody has to watch a 15 second spot. You got to basically deliver like an old school TV ad that we used to watch on like linear, yeah. and, but you get all the data and the tracking. And I think it's going to be like, I feel like social networks were kind of like the newspapers or the magazines of advertising. And we're about to get into like the new, the digital version of TV. And to me, that I, the, I, it's fascinating and I'm so excited for it, but the double-edged sword is there's just a straight up cost, right? Like the video production, how many ad units you have to buy, how much you have to spend on basically just branding to then eventually push someone down to your website is going to price a lot of brands out. And so I feel like there, something has to happen. There needs to be some new innovation in the space that those small, like sub $500,000, just getting started brands can use because it seems like just everything that we've relied on for the past five to 10 years is just getting saturated and saturated. And everybody's just looking for more growth, like kind of where we started, like everybody mm-hmm. needs to hit three, 400% growth. And at a certain point, like you just tap out everywhere you can reach unless we seriously as an industry move into retail. And I've seen that from brands and it's fascinating. Chubby's did it really well before they got acquired. Tacovis has been a fascinating story, but I feel like today it's only stories. It's not a trend. Yeah. And then everybody, when 2020 hit was like, yeah, see retail sucks. Screw it. Like, <laughs> yeah. And I was like, I was like, if you're smart, you're actually buying the retail now. Cause when I bounce yeah. back, you just had a nice buy low, sell high moment where then you can go roll out your stores and you're not crushed by these terrible real estate <laughs> contracts of what screwed over the last generation of why everybody moved into e-com. Yeah. Well, it's actually crazy. Cause I remember that, like, it was like April of 2020. I forget who it was. I had someone on the podcast. I forget if they said it live. I mean, that narrows it down to like four people cause I'm weekly, but they, um, I was like, so what are you doing? And then he's like, Oh, I'm trying to buy as much real estate as I can or get into as much real estate as I can right now. I was like, huh. I'm like, he's really bullish on this. And like, you know, fast forward to now, I think they're doing really well. And they have all these like leases they've locked in for like nothing. And now like, you know, they probably even like going to war, like the lease company is probably going to war with them now to try to, you know, <laughs> yeah. do what they can to get the money back. But no, it's, it's so fascinating. It's so fascinating what you say. And it makes total sense. Like I'm seeing similar things, even people on the podcast, we did an episode recently talking about programmatic and it's like, wait, mm-hmm. I, I had to ask, 
like, hey, for listeners, like, can you remind us what programmatic is? Because I think like most people in this wave of direct consumer and e-commerce marketing don't even know what programmatic is. Um, or like you're saying about the new like way to advertise on TV with like the OTT. We're even seeing clients do more out of home advertising and direct mail and like all these things. Because like you said, it used to be like, wow, these channels are expensive. But now it's like we're spending a lot on Facebook, not getting a lot in return. So the least that we can do is like get the same result on another channel um, or, you know, take that risk and find something. I think it's really interesting, like you said, too. Um, it's also... I think we should maybe highlight like the positive in this too. It's not that scary if you're a good and strong and like talented marketer. It's actually a big opportunity because like you said, there's going to be a thinning of the herd in 2022. Those people who who aren't, who are still going to rely on ROAS and switch to, I don't know, direct mail and be like, okay, well, I'll still use ROAS, but it'll be off direct mail. They're, they're not going to have a great year, but it is, it was, you know, you hate to say it was easy, but it used to be pretty easy because Facebook did all the work for you. Yeah, that's so true. And also, I love your piece about direct mail because also you can't just turn those on and off on a weekly basis. You got to like plan that out, let it <laughs> ride and then see the results. And that's because depending on the the program, that could be a four to six month cycle before you even know what happened and like have any real data behind it. Yeah. But yeah, so what I'm really excited about is kind of the maturity of the market and also like just even though we had that like crazy growth where it was whatever, 10 years of e-com growth compared to retail, we're still so early. Like, yeah. It's still so early that there's, I'm not, I don't mean to be completely doom and gloom. I think that there's going to be a thinning of the herd. And then I think we're going to see this like massive new, I feel like we're just at that point where we're at like a Phoenix moment or when a, like a butterfly moment where like, we're going to see a, like a pullback and it's going to be pretty tough, but whatever comes out of that, whatever is next, is what I'm most excited for. Because I think the same thing you just mentioned, like it's fun to go explore and test those new channels. But I think we're just at a point where we fundamentally need to rethink how this works. Like I yeah. feel like it, it's been, we've been having this conversation now for five years and that we haven't found the top yet, but I feel like everybody's just like, we're kind of tired of running the same strategies and running the same business models. And I think everybody wants to look for something new. The other part that I'm excited for of how mature this market is, it's kind of lost its sexiness a little bit. So a lot of the get rich quick schemers are now moving into web three, which I am yeah. bullish on, but it's nice to like, not have to worry about like somebody ripping you off and starting a drop shipping store and just blowing up their ads, never shipping a product. And now your customers think that it was your bad business when it was really just probably some 17 year old yeah. in like their parents' house. Like, I think that's the other piece of this of like, I just see more and more of the industry kind of growing up. And it's weird because it's that old startup analogy of like, you you want to be the pirates early days, but eventually if you want to like be successful, you have to grow into the Navy. And I feel like e is kind of having one of those moments where it was like, you know, we weren't necessarily pirates, but it was, we were still a little raucous. Things were definitely like, yeah. really took the move fast and break things mantra pretty, pretty literally, which is ironic because it was a physical products industry. But um, <laughs> right, I feel like we're at the point where it's like, no, like we actually need to be methodical about this. We need to be thoughtful. We need to have a real plan behind this. Not yes. just, I'm going to find 15 products on Alibaba or from a Chinese manufacturer, throw up a landing page tomorrow, run Facebook ads. It works. It doesn't work. And I move on to the next thing. Like there, that strategy, I don't think the strategy will work. I think some of the tactics will be helpful for people to test in the future, but we're just going to have this evolution. And to me, that's what I'm excited about because I feel like there's just still so much more potential for us to figure this stuff out. Like knowing that my like parents and grandparents generation are barely just figuring out how to use Amazon. <laughs> and like, mm-hmm. that was the beginning of my, like I got into e-com because I shopped on Amazon a lot as a teenager. And I was like, wow, this is a really cool experience. I love the mechanics behind this. I want to learn more. 
And the fact that like an entire, like the majority of where money is and one to two entire generations are just figuring this out means like we haven't even begun to scratch the surface. And then people are like nine or 13 are probably better shoppers and more intelligent about this stuff than I am. And it's like, yeah. it's so they don't even have a credit card yet. Yeah. I'm like, I mean, they're spending mom and dad's money, but they're doing it yeah. efficiently. And they're like, it's, it's unbelievable. So I think like we're just at this interesting flex moment where we're just going to see everything change. Maybe not everything, but we're gonna see a lot of fundamentals change. And that's what I'm the most excited for because yeah. if you understand the fun, like the I feel like where we really agree is like if you have the foundation and the principles, whatever the new system is, you just apply the same principles to and adapt it to that system. And I think the next one has to be better than what we currently have. And if it doesn't, then we should all be reconsidering what we're doing. Yeah. And that's why, like, if you think about the data and the trend of the marketplace, that's why it's like, we really don't need to reconsider because we still are just tapping into it, but it is getting harder. But then you think about it again, it's like, well, the largest, like, you know, DN, wait, what is it? Digitally native, vertically integrated brands that we used to call like, you know, of that generation. And even like, you know, the next wave of that, like they're really only doing like, if you're doing a hundred million in revenue a year, like that's great. But then you look at the VF Corp brands or like any of these other brands that are in retail and they're just like on fire. Like even just thinking of like, you know, number one brand of all time, consumer brand of all time, like, um, well, I'll go with Nike. Like uh, it's probably like more like Apple or something. Right. But, um, you know, mm-hmm. Nike is like a brand, like it's the biggest brand. Like they don't, they're not selling you computer and software same as, uh, Apple, but, um, they're, I mean, you think of the revenue and the numbers they do, it's freaking huge. Also, how many activewear companies are there that are worth like over a billion dollars these days? I feel like too, too many. I don't know how, also, I don't know how so many people start legging businesses. I was like five <laughs> years ago, this market is too saturated and every, same as skincare. And every day I see a new one and they're just blowing up. And so Lululemon's crushing, Viore came out of nowhere and raised that like extra $400 million. And everyone's like, what's going on? Ali Yoga is quietly doing like two, 300 million a year. And it's just like, holy cow. Like the market's also way bigger than we thought. Even when you look at Yeti, it's like, how are these guys doing I think they're doing like 200 million or something revenue a quarter these days, um, profitably. Yeah. Selling coolers. And I actually, I have one, so I'll make fun of myself. <laughs> they're essentially glorified cups. Dude, can <laughs> we talk about water bottle cup. companies? Yeah. Like there's so many of these companies. Um, the brew make, they're crushing. Corksicle's crushing. Cool. Yeah. Hydro Flask is crushing. Before that, it was, there was a- Hydro Flask ex- actually just got acquired. Oh, really? What'd they get acquired yeah. for? think north of like $400 million. Wow. Um, what was their yeah, revenue? I, I don't know. I don't know if it disclosed it. I just like read a, a headline pretty quickly, but yeah, I think like, I completely agree. And I think, I think to your point, like the, if we go back to that VF Corp example, like 10 years ago, we're going to think it's silly that we only sold online. <laughs> like if, <laughs> if Nike was like, you know what guys, we don't want to sell in any of our retail stores anymore or any of our like wholesale retail locations, people would lose their mind. And I think that was, it's been kind of fun to be part of the DTC tribe and we have our own little thing and we're like the mm-hmm. Davids against the Goliath. But like uh, the big thing that I've realized, especially in the past year and a half, two years is yeah. you, you, you're a consumer product brand. You're not just a DTC brand. Like, yes, DTC was the arbitrage or the innovation in the sales model to get you to market faster, understand the customer, iterate and improve faster than the long cycle of retail. But I mean, for my day back at Lumi, I managed our two largest sales channels of Shopify and Amazon, but our retail business was way bigger than both of those two sales channels. And like, we can probably spend hours and days like prophesizing on how big e-com will be versus retail, but 
That's not really the point. The point is that you need to be everywhere. You need to be in marketplaces. You need to be in retailers. You need to have your own retail locations. You need to sell D2C. You need to do all of these things. And it's, I find it hilarious when people are like, yeah, we have an e-com presence. We're on Amazon. Or like, we're not going to go into retail because it doesn't make sense for our business. And my first question is, well, what are your unit economics? Because if you have a healthy margin product and right. you're spending and you only have a 2x ROAS on, on Facebook, you probably actually would have a healthier business in retail. Like, yes, you're technically your margin is lower, but they're buying way higher volumes and you're getting, I wouldn't call them better payment terms, but you're getting large payments from stable providers. So it's, well, I guess stable is also relative depending on your success in those channels, but you need to be everywhere, right? Like, I think the interesting thing also from the recent Warby earnings was the retail locations themselves independently are completely unprofitable. But everywhere, every location that they open up a new retail location, their online sales skyrocket. And it's it's nothing new. And I really, I, I don't mean to say this like I'm innovative or I had a creative thought. <laughs> like it's not. It's actually just really old school, like business fundamentals. But having all having an ecosystem where all of those things play together and having a product catalog where all of those things play together is so important. Because I know, I know we're pretty close to time. So the one last thing that I just kind of want to wrap up on is I spent the past like two months going through Shopify Plus's 10 largest brands. So like buy revenue and Alexa rank. Who are the people doing the most revenue? And I did a quick videos on like, here are some things to steal. From Who were the, the brands? Is it like, is Fashion Nova one of them? Uh, I don't or think no. I can do this in order, but Fashion Nova, Gymshark, Pure One, JB Hi-Fi, ModCloth. Oh man, I can only get through five. Um, I said I said Pure One. Uh, I'm missing another fitness apparel brand. I'm missing another fashion brand. Um, I can look this up and send you the list afterwards, but outside Alberts of, is Alberts one? No, Alberts no. personally isn't. Yeah. Huh. Uh, Alberts probably biggest one of the biggest brands on Shopify. Yeah, logo. Sellers. Um, That's yeah, deceiving too. Um, <laughs> quick point on that. Like just because you see a company in case studies a lot, it doesn't mean they're big. Like we work with some of them and you talk to some of these people and you're like, that's all the revenue you're doing, but they're more well-known than some of like the nine figure brands we work with. It's kind of mind blowing. Anyway, yeah. sorry. Yeah. You analyze it's the top also, 10 Shopify plus. It's all, yeah. So quick change on that. It's interesting to see the people who are doing massive amounts of revenue who you've never heard of versus the people who make a ton of noise, but really aren't that big of right. a business. Which is um, funny because like, you're like, I can only name five. You can't even remember the next five, yet they're the five <laughs> highest oh, revenue generated. ColourPop, that was the makeup one. Oh, and so, yeah. Um, what's fascinating is all of those businesses have massive product catalogs. Like Fashion Nova, I don't know the specifics. They have to have over like 10,000. They launch thousands per students. week, I think, or something yeah, crazy. I, I, I can't even like mentally contain (laughs) how much they, how much they roll out. Gymshark has a massive product catalog, pure one. They don't technically hold inventory, but their offering is huge. And I think like, to me, that's the one thing that brands need to start thinking about. If if you do want to be that multi-generational brand, if you do want to have that hybrid purchase rate, if you do want to be able to sustain a D2C marketplace, retail, wholesale, all of those things. Like you just need to have a business that supports having that ma- massive product catalog. And of course, there's going to be like four or five examples that disprove this theory. And they're just complete unicorns. To me, I'd rather take the fundamental tested process that I can roll out over and over again versus get lucky a couple of times. Don't get me wrong. I love being lucky. Yeah. But 
I feel like the, these really successful brands just can support these massive, massive product catalogs that they don't build on day one, right? All of those brands that we just listed started with one to maybe 10 products when they launched. And then they just kept stacking and stacking and stacking over probably most of them the past 10 years, but really starting to think through what's that ecosystem? Where does our customer live everywhere? How do we own whatever experience we're associated with from a brand perspective? That's what's really going to that's what's really going to help the brands weather the storm over the next eighteen to twenty four months. That's what's going to set them up for the next ten years to be those massively successful things. I know that this is kind of like a big thing that you talk about a lot, also. But it's just like it's a trend I'm seeing more and more. And these brands don't necessarily care about one marketing channel going down or a couple of small sales channels having tough months because they're having this much bigger view and they are they they're so diversified in so many different places that they can weather a couple of tough months here and there for specific problems like rise and cac. Right. And it's like you say you just you don't have to build everything overnight, but the strongest brands right now are the ones who have stacked over time. Like they saw Facebook they're like this is doing well while they're doing that they're testing the channels they're like wow, let's scale this up. Same with the products. They're like, hey, that product launch did really well. That's another thing. I know we, t- I think we did it on a previous episode before we talk about the like optimizing for product launches and spikes in yep. revenue. A lot of people think they shouldn't have spikes and that it should be a nice and, and steady growth, but actually those spikes help a lot, especially when you talk about, you know, thinking about your cash flow and in getting it as quickly as possible. Those can really help, but um, I don't think we have enough time to jump into that. Um, this has been super fun. I feel like we need to do this more often just because. Well, A, everything's changing every three months now. So we need <laughs> every to update. Two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We need to update on the latest, but um, it's always a good time chopping it up. So really appreciate you coming on, sharing, you know, what unit economics brand should I get back to, what trends you're seeing for the new year. And um, yeah, like like you said, lots of opportunity, but it's also going to be a make or break year for a lot of people. So rest up and then we're going to have to strap back in for a a crazy ride in 2022. So thanks so much for coming on the show, Jeremy. Um, Where can we go to, you know, listen to your podcast and find out where you are these days? Yeah, definitely. So first, thank you for having me on. Uh, I do. I re- we should extend this conversation in three months, have you back on Messenger Mastermind so we can dive into this more. Um, so if you want to listen to this, if my face hasn't completely scared you off, we're on YouTube now. So Messenger Mastermind, we're also on every major podcast network. So if you listen somewhere, anywhere, we should be there. And then if any of this has been helpful, if you want to hear any or just more crazy ideas like this, Jeremy Horowitz on LinkedIn, H-O-R-O-W-I-T-Z. I try to post one helpful thing every day that falls solely focused on e-commerce, but falls in line with these kind of things. Uh, or if you just want to come and scream at me and think I'm an idiot, that's that's open to that as well. Sounds great. We'll link it all up down in the show notes below. We'll also link up the previous episode or episodes we did. Um, I'm still in like the BFCM blur, so <laughs> I can't count or remember anything that's happened before. Um, but we'll link that all up. Really great episodes. We can also link up uh, when I came on your show. I think that was a really good episode too. So we'll link that up. And yeah, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Awesome. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Wavebreak Podcast. If you're not subscribed on iTunes or Spotify, go hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out on future episodes. And if you're not on our email list, go sign up at wavebreak.co slash join. You'll join other e-commerce leaders at brands like Skims, Cartier, and Walmart, and thousands more learning exactly what's working in e-commerce right now. You won't want to miss it. Sign up at wavebreak.co slash join. It's free. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Waybreak Podcast. I hope you have a wonderful day.